This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, discusses her book, Lessons from the Edge, a memoir. She reflects on her career, U.S. and Russia relations, and her congressional testimony during the first impeachment hearings of former President Donald Trump. There may come a time when uh, Russia prevails militarily, Mm -hmm. and there will have to be some sort of um, a peace deal made. Uh, But I'm not sure that the Ukrainian people, in fact, I'm pretty sure the Ukrainian people will not accept it. She's interviewed by New Yorker staff writer Susan Glasser. Well, I'm Susan Glasser. Uh, I'm joined today by Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. Uh, and the book, of course, is Lessons from the Edge. Uh, and, uh, you know, it uh, must be something to see not only your life story uh, here between two covers, uh, but also this big, beautiful <laughs> picture of you uh, staring out. And it's, um, you know, in many ways, that's a good place to start, I think, Ambassador Ivanovich, because... You're clearly uh, in a town full of self-promoters and, uh, you know, people who want to slap their name and their picture on everything. Um, you're clearly a very reluctant public figure, and that comes through in this memoir, uh, that it's the story of a public servant and not a public figure. And so let's start with that. Uh, you know, this is a book conversation, writing a memoir about essentially not wanting to write a memoir and put yourself in the center of the story. What was that like? Yeah. Well, thank you for, for having me here today. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, it, it was a challenge to, to, to write the book, quite frankly. Uh, I am an introvert by, by nature, um, don't like being the center of attention. Uh, and so I um, thought long and hard about whether I really wanted to write a book. But I received many, many letters of support, as did others who testified during the first impeachment inquiry. And people asked me about my life and um, about the challenges that I had faced, and they wanted to know more. And so I thought that maybe through a memoir, I could share with people the importance of diplomacy, why, why diplomacy is so important to our national security interests as, as a tool to promote them. Well, it's, you know, it's really interesting that you say this about diplomacy because, to me, that's one of the more interesting aspects of your book is that it is, it is a case for diplomacy, uh, but it's also a, a portrait of what, what it means uh, to exist as an American official in the world today, in this complicated, messy world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, you sort of saw uh, the unraveling in real time, and now with the consequences that we see uh, in terms of war with Ukraine, in terms of the resurgence of uh, a new era of corrupt autocracies, uh, you know, reshaping the world order. This has not been, you know, front and center uh, in the Washington conversation or in the American political conversation for, for so long. And, you know, having, having just written a biography of a Secretary mm-hmm. of State, Jim Baker, there's very little writing, uh, you know, about American diplomacy or what it means or how it's conducted, you know, in the modern era. So, you know, how do we look at the moment that we're in, though, and, and, and see this? Uh, m- most people fear that we're in a moment of failure of American diplomacy, not, not success. Yeah. 
Well, I think, you know, one thing uh, to understand about diplomacy is everybody thinks they can do it, right? Because... <laughs> <laughs> right, like politics. <laughs> because, yeah, because, you know, I, I can talk to you and you can talk to me and we can figure this out together. Um, but as with most professions, it's, it's more complicated than that and it's important to understand, you know, the culture and the language and um, so many different factors and how you get to yes. And a yes that is durable over, over, over time. And I would say that right now, actually, we are witnessing the importance of diplomacy on steroids with President Biden, um, Secretary Blinken's efforts to keep this uh, coalition together. I mean, I think it's remarkable. And I think it's one of the reasons, um, I think it's one of the things that uh, Vladimir Putin underestimated. He thought that the West was kind of done. You know, we're a corrupt um, kind of uh, set of democracies that are just the same as autocracies. And that we wouldn't have the will or the skill to um, come together as a group and push back on Russia. And we have. And so I think that shows you right there the importance of diplomacy. All right. So let's talk about Putin. Let's talk about uh, his view that we were, you know, no better than a, a, a corrupt country who would essentially let him establish his sphere of influence uh, in uh, his part of the world and mm-hmm. where you served in Ukraine. We wouldn't be having this conversation today uh, if you had not figured right in the middle of a scandal that probably helped to shape Putin's attitudes uh, towards America. Uh, you know, And I think a lot of people are wrestling right now with this question of the Trump administration and how much that did or didn't influence the events that we're seeing unfold right now with the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you have the former president who is an admirer of Vladimir Putin, uh, of longstanding, uh, has not only called him a strong leader, a great leader, literally praised uh, his plans to take over part of uh, Ukraine as genius uh, as the troops were rolling. Uh, but at the same time, you also have defenders of the former president say, well, uh, Vladimir Putin didn't bomb Kiev, you know, when Trump was in office. So, you have some unique perspective to share with us. Uh, let's start to walk through, because your book tells the story, of course, uh, the story of what was the actual no BS <laughs> Trump policy toward Ukraine. Uh, you know, I've often said that there was a kind of a Trump administration policy and then a President Trump policy. Is that yeah. how it looked to you? It's probably as good a description as any. And and it's kind of confusing because the Trump administration policy, the president's official policy, was actually pretty strong. Mm -hmm. It was um, a continuation of the Obama policy. Um, I thought that was a a very good policy in terms of supporting Ukraine and helping Ukraine move forward to become the kind of partner that would be best for the United States. Um, That's what they wanted, you know, to fight corruption, develop their economy, uh, improve their democracy um, and, and their security, of course. So we had a strong and a robust relationship uh, with Ukraine, particularly after 2014 um, and the uh, revolution of dignity and the um, Russian actions uh, in return when they grabbed Crimea illegally and um, uh, attacked the Donbass area in in the east. So um, the Trump administration continued uh, that strong policy. And in one way, he actually even strengthened it, which is that... Um, there had been some discussion under the Obama administration right. about share, uh, you know, uh, transferring javelins, uh, the anti-tank uh, missiles, to uh, to Ukraine, 
and um, the Obama administration declined to do that. But Trump, um, at the end of um, 20, uh, 2017, his yeah. first year in, in the presidency, he did agree uh, to do that. Then, of course, famously, <laughs> he held them hostage uh, in the infamous um, perfect phone call where he asked for a favor in exchange, a personal and political favor. Well, that's right. So let's back up a little bit, because in 2017, you're already the ambassador. Mm -hmm. You're already in Kyiv. Uh, you see uh, the situation there. Uh, and... There was a big fight, actually, inside the Obama administration in the final year of that. And you must have been aware of that and, you know, uh, the back and forth. And it really was Obama personally uh, who, against the counsel of his defense secretary and even ultimately, I think, the secretary of state, John Kerry, uh, didn't want to send the weapons. He viewed that as escalatory with, with Putin. Uh, but he also clearly had Putin's number at this, at this point in time. So the Ukrainians are looking very anxiously, though, at Trump. It's not that they thought, well, the Trump administration is going to have a good policy, right? Like, they were kind of panicked when Trump came into office. The president at the time is uh, Petro Poroshenko in Ukraine, right? And mm -hmm. they're looking at a president of the United States who says he wants to have a good relationship with Russia, who says Putin is a strong leader, a better leader even than our own American leaders. And there's a lot of conversation when Trump first comes into office that he's even going to lift the sanctions on Ukraine. Uh, sorry, uh, on the sanctions on Russia because of its illegal annexation of Crimea. So how real of a threat was that at the beginning? And, and tell us about how anxious the Ukrainians were when Trump came into office. Well, I, the Ukrainians were rather nervous um, given everything that you've just outlined, and some of the comments that he had made as a candidate with regard to Crimea, that Crimea was really Russian, et cetera, et cetera. And they were, they were worried about where the policy was going to go. Um, but, you know, in the beginning of every administration, I mean, you're a long-time Washington hand, it, it's chaos. Uh, no matter how well-prepared an incoming administration is, you know, you're drinking from the fire hose, everything's coming at you at once. You, don't, you often don't have key people in place to help move things forward. Mm -hmm. And this was true, you know, on steroids for the Trump administration, where it was largely a group of people who uh, had not been in government or had not been in government recently, or perhaps were not the most skilled <laughs> in government. Um, so uh, there, there was a lot of chaos, but there was a lot of drift uh, for, uh, for, for a while. So that's the prelude to you actually the one time you actually had a meeting with Donald Trump. I find this to be a fascinating story uh, because a I didn't really know about it until I read your book uh, and and b I think it's this it could be the prologue unfortunately right to this to this moment we're having with the war because what did you hear directly from the mouth of the president of the United States in that meeting? So uh, Donald Trump turned to his national security advisor. And the, H.R. The, McMaster at the time. Yes. Um, there, was a gen, there was a discussion about the Donbass, and um, Petro Poroshenko requested javelins and, you know, other military assistance, security assistance. And um, President Trump, uh, in response, looks at H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, and says, we've got troops there. I mean, troops in the east. And so McMaster, you know, absolutely uh, deadpan. Everybody was absolutely deadpan. Nobody was like expressing surprise, um, said, well, we've got troops in the far west on the Polish border where we are training Ukrainian soldiers. Um, and for me, this was, you know, like one of those moments. 
And because I thought, well, how is it that the President of the United States doesn't know where his... I mean, he's our Commander-in-Chief. Uh, is it... How is it that he doesn't know where his troops are? Or does he not know that the adversary on the other side is Russia and he thinks we're in a shooting war with Russia? So it was, it was really remarkable because this is the man that is making decisions not only on Ukraine policy and other, other issues, but, but on the most important and sensitive issues that face the United States. Yeah, no, it must have been just absolutely mind-blowing for you, especially because you're living day and night in this reality, and you're here with the president of a country yeah. who is literally fighting the Russians. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I, it, it, it reminds me of that anecdote about the, the leaders of the three Baltic countries yeah. who go in. Uh, uh, it's actually a little bit after that meeting of yours, and they go in to uh, President Trump, and President Trump confuses the Baltics and the Balkans, and they realize that when he starts talking about the beginning of World War I. Yeah. Uh, but, so you're in this meeting, and the other thing he says that is this real echo of the scandal that would later erupt, right, because he, he talks about his view of the entire country of Ukraine in front of Ukraine's president, right? He says something like, it's a corrupt country. Yeah. Most, I think he actually said the most corrupt country in the world. The most corrupt country in the world. I, I believe so. And he, um, and Petro Poroshenko, I mean, he, he kind of pushed back. And the source, uh, you know, for, uh, for the president's allegation was he had heard that from a friend of his at Mar-a-Lago. At Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the source so, of all information. That's right. And, you know, Petro Poroshenko did a pretty good job of, of pushing back. And one of the things that I find to be, you know, kind of unfair is that the reason we talk about Ukraine and corruption is that in 2014, when the Ukrainians were angry that they're pro-2013 um, and then 2014, that their pro-Russia President Yanukovych had turned his back on a closer association with Europe, which Ukrainians wanted. They wanted the economic yeah. benefits of that. And so they were angry, and first students went out on the street, and then hundreds of thousands went out on the street, and they eventually uh, pushed uh, Yanukovych uh, out, out, out of the country. But, they, you know, I mean, the, the name of the revolution was called the Revolution of Dignity. And what that means is rule of law. I want to be treated with yeah. dignity. I want to be treated the same way as the president is treated under the law. You know, whether I'm a president, I'm a pauper, whether I'm an oligarch or just a small business owner, the law should be equal for everybody. And we want to stop paying bribes in order to be treated well. And um, that was the essence of that, um, you know, people's revolt, really. Yeah. And so the incoming administration of Petra Poroshenko, in the beginning, you know, they, they were quite, um, quite uh, good on fighting corruption because they had no other choice. And... So it was a very open discussion. There were many initiatives that were taking place. The U.S., other countries, the international financial institutions were all helping the Ukrainians in this goal because, you know, we thought that that was good for them, but also good for us because there would be a better partner in Ukraine. And, um, yeah, so that's why we talk about Ukrainian corruption, because the Ukrainian people wanted to put an end to corruption. Right, and yet, amazingly enough, you had Trump, who's, campaign chairman had been Paul Manafort, who was literally the political impresario behind Viktor Yanukovych, the yes. pro-Russian leader who'd been forced out in that revolution. And that must have given you as well a lot of pause. Uh, you know, it seemed almost incredible, I imagine, as the ambassador. Yeah, well, 
I actually arrived after Manafort right. um, had to resign. Right. And so, uh, fortunately, I, I didn't have to, you know, confront that issue directly while I was ambassador. Yeah, but it's the context for yeah. then what happens next. So, okay, so let's flash forward. The reason we're here, your memoir, uh, is not what happened in that almost prologue meeting, uh, you know, in the spring of 2017, but it's the events that began, unbeknownst to you, unfolding the following summer, in the summer of 2018, and then uh, explode in your world Mm -hmm. in the spring of 2019. Uh, And that's a story that you recount here, uh, although it has to go backwards because uh, there's this impeachment that brings it all to the public view, and your own view, uh, you learn a lot. Uh, in in the fall of 2019, and it really causes you, you know, as with many things, you know, crises clarify, scandals clarify, uh, wars, as we now see, they they clarify. And so, mm-hmm. for you, I feel like you you write this story as a series of revelatory, shocking, but also clarifying moments. So so tell us what some of those moments were, uh, you know, as as they unfolded for you. What what was the the big time? that you realized this isn't just some crazy rumor, you know, yeah. that they're out for me. Yeah. So, I mean, there were a number of, of, of moments. And, you know, people are always surprised when I tell them, well, you know, nobody sat me down and said, this is what is happening. Because yeah. uh, everybody had a little, little piece of it. And, of course, Rudy Giuliani wasn't sharing with me what he was doing. So uh, it, was, it was very um, almost Kafkaesque, uh, you know, that there were these things out there People were coming to me and saying, hey, did you know that Rudy Giuliani has established this relationship with this corrupt prosecutor who did not like me, Lutsenko? Um, Did you know this? Did you know that? And I would go back to Washington and I'd say, hey, um, FYI, this this is what I heard today. And people would say, don't worry, because, of course, I was calling my part of Washington. I was calling the State Department official Washington. And this was all happening... um, you know, around um, President Trump, and um, but not by um, you know civil servants, foreign service officers, um, people like Fiona Hill. I mean, what was, he called the deep all, state. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, they had a, a, a deeper <laughs> condition, I would say, and so they were, um, I think, the uh, planning uh, how to uh, get um, dirt basically on Joe Biden, and I think. There was a sense that maybe I would not be um, helpful in that in, in that effort if I saw things that were going going wrong. But you didn't. You knew about some of these issues, but by the time it becomes public here in Washington, and you have Sean Hannity talking about yeah. you, Laura Ingraham, the president's son, Don Jr. That's when I really realized, wow, there's some crazy thing happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's a small community here mm-hmm. in Washington that pays attention to Russia and, and Ukraine. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, uh, like you, have known these folks, uh, you know, here for many years since we served in, in Moscow. And, you know, it didn't really break through, but it was one of these, like, huh, you know, there's these parallel universe is now in Washington, right? And so the, the kind of conspiracy theory du jour that's on Fox doesn't necessarily break through to a broader audience. But th- this is your name all of a sudden. You yeah. know, what was that like for you sitting in the embassy? It was crazy. So, you know, I thought that my problem was in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but right. once the articles came out uh, in The Hill, and then rapidly right after that, it was all over Fox News, the, the president of the United States himself actually retweeted one of the stories. 
later on, um, uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, you know, let's get rid of clowns like Yovanovitch or something to yeah. that effect. Yeah. Um, so once it hit the hill, I realized, I started realizing that the that my problem was in Washington. And so I cast about, you know, looking for, for, for people to help. Mm -hmm. There actually happened to be a congressional delegation in town, and they were great. You know, they stood mm -hmm. up for me with all of the Ukrainians, but that was not where my problem was. My problem was in wa Washington. Right, and they wouldn't the stick up with you for you here. Yeah. Yeah. And that, by the way, is very interesting and, again, relevant to this current moment of crisis with Ukraine because Americans might be a little confused. Well, there seems to be this kind of bipartisan support for Ukraine. But I feel like this, this partisanship that exists just below the surface of that uh, is likely to, to resurface. So, Well, I hope not. Because, yeah. I mean, we have had a long-running bipartisan consensus on Ukraine ever yeah. since independence in 1991. Yeah. And uh, we're really seeing it flower right now. And I hope it does continue. Because this is an important moment, certainly, for Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, but it's also an important moment for us we need to pass this test uh, in terms of our resolve because the Vladimir Putin does have an obsession about Ukraine, but he also, I think, is trying to undermine the international order that we have all benefited from over you know, the last 75 plus years mm -hmm. since World War II. Well, you talk about the bipartisan consensus on Ukraine, but the big thing that we learned from the impeachment, and we can walk through it, but you know, to get to the end of the story first, I suppose, out of order, <laughs> Every single Republican member of Congress, except for Mitt Romney, every single one, including many who have subsequently become very strong critics of former President Trump, every single one of them uh, uh, did not uh, vote to find anything wrong with President Trump holding military aid for Ukraine hostage. So there's a lot of partisanship beneath the Yes, you, you are absolutely right. Um, but I... I I guess I like to think about that as less about, you know, showing support or not for Ukraine and right. more about protecting, you know, your your party's president. Right, um, the team sports aspect of, of this moment. Yeah, which is also worrisome, very yeah. worrisome. That's right. So, okay, didn't mean to interject in the story <laughs> here, but uh, it's really amazing. So this is about, this is March of 2019, and, you know, you realize you have this Washington problem, and you go to one of Trump's ambassadors, uh, one of his political appointees, a guy who gave a million bucks, a, a hotel owner uh, from Portland, Oregon, uh, mm -hmm. because that's the weird system we have, that some ambassadors are foreign service officers like you, and then some are just fat cat donors uh, mm -hmm. who don't have any experience. And Gordon Sondland is obviously later emerges as a public figure, but you went to him, and he gave you this very interesting piece of advice that you also heard from some of your superiors. Mm -hmm. What did he tell you to do? Well, he basically said, you know the president, and if you don't know the president, which I certainly did not feel I did know the president after, you know, just that one meeting, um, you know what he's like and what he likes. So you need to tweet out that, you know, you love the president and you need to, you know, really make it strong. Um, my advice is to go big or go home. And, you know, I thought about that as a foreign service officer and we are nonpartisan. I mean, that doesn't mean that you don't get to have your own private and personal beliefs. But we, we work for the government. We do work for the president. But we are not partisans for the president as somebody who might be a political appointee uh, from, you know, a president's party would be a partisan for the president. And that's really important for the continuity of government, um, that uh, we are a democracy. 
and the people elect the president. And the president needs to feel confident that once a policy is set, after all of the debate and, you know, the, <laughs> the ugly right. stuff that goes into making that policy, after all that happens, that his team, you know, from the State Department, from every other agency uh, in Washington, will go out and implement that policy. That's really important. Now, clearly, Trump did not feel that way. You mentioned the deep state, um, you know, that we were sort of fifth columnists or something trying to undermine him and so forth. But um, that's actually very far from the truth uh, about, um, certainly about the State Department. And um, I, I felt that if I, you know, kind of un, 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 unprovoked, I mean, sort of put out a tweet like that, people would really wonder whether I'd lost it. And it would just, it would just feel wrong. Yeah. Um, right. You're not partisan. there as a personal agent of the president. You're there as an agent of yeah. the national interest. And, right. uh, and you heard that even in writing from one of your colleagues, I think, who probably surprised you. I mean, you talk about crises as a learning experience. David Hale, the number three at the State Department at that time, was a career officer. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet he seemed to be embracing this notion that you should uh, personally flatter the president and, and speak of your loyalty to him and yeah. not to the system. Yeah, yeah. That was, that's how I understood it, as sort of a, a loyalty pledge. Yeah. I'm sure that's not what he was thinking in his mind when he um, when he uh, recommended that. I had asked um, David and others at the State Department whether the State Department could release yeah. a statement in in support of me because I could see that if uh, the department, preferably Pompeo himself, didn't come to my defense robustly, yeah. that I mean I would have to I would have to leave um, because you know once you have the president and the president's family sort of um, putting stuff out like that, um, you know, the Ukrainians would be um, be understandable if they wondered whether I was really representing the the president and his policies. Um, but that was a Saturday, and they would talk to Pompeo about it on Monday, and uh, in the end, there was no statement of support. That night, I did um, tape something, but I I just I just couldn't do what um, what I think. They wanted, yeah. and um, and again, it was a question of why, why, why is she doing that? Um, and so, what I did um, because presidential elections in Ukraine were coming up within a week, I talked about the importance of democracy, the importance of our institutions, uh, and and so forth, uh, rather than that. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm working to implement the, the president's policies or something. So you like never that. heard from Mike Pompeo throughout this whole ordeal. No. He never called you. He never. never wrote to you. No. And you and other, many people appealed to him to speak out, uh, and he never did. And in fact, uh, I listened to the very good interview you did with my, my friend uh, Mary Louise Kelly from NPR. She played mm -hmm. the snippet from her famous interview with Mike <laughs> Pompeo in which he basically rips her head off uh, for uh, reminding him that he did not defend you. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all at a time when he is bringing his ethos um, yeah. statement to yeah. the department um, telling us how we should behave. And, you know, there's the final ethos statement. Uh, you know, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I mean, I would probably embrace every single one of the principles of dealing, um, you know, with uh, integrity, with your um, colleagues and things like that. But he managed to violate every single one of them. Yeah, and, and that's, again, this sort of clarifying thing that I think is an interesting and important part of the story that you tell in the book. This institution that you served for 33 years in places like Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, and in, you know, Kyrgyzstan and Russia and Ukraine, 
this institution that you serve for 33 years is basically sort of under assault, uh, uh, repeated feints, and, and you very unwittingly become uh, uh, a test, not just one that ultimately explodes your own career, uh, but the institution itself. It reveals, you know, the fissures and, and weak points in this institution. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, there are later accounts, uh, John Bolton and others, and the testimony and impeachment shows that in that spring, uh, Pompeo was probably holding off Donald Trump for quite some time uh, uh, in terms of firing you. But in the end, both Bolton and Pompeo cave when ordered to directly by the President of the United States. Uh, so that's an interesting question. Are they, in the end, as far as you're concerned, his enablers? Uh, or is it just a story about in our system the President has enormous power and you can only resist for so long? Is it, is it better <coughs> to be there and to be sort of somewhat complicit but resisting or not? You know, I'm, I'm, I just, this is the big question I know, but I'd love to know your answer because it was yeah. your life. It was your career. Right. Um, well, I, I, I think that's a good question, and I think it's a question that um, everybody who works in government has to ask themselves at some point because you're not going to love every policy of an administration. Yeah. And so how... How are you going to deal with that? So, for example, uh, the second war in Iraq, um, I, I, th- I thought that was wrong. Um, and uh, I, not that anybody was pushing, I'm not a, a Middle Eastern hand, but not that anybody was pushing for me to go to Iraq. But I tried to stay out, out of uh, the mainstream of that. Um, I, I, I think everybody has to find their own path to that. With regard um, to Pompeo and Bolton, I think it's both. I think they were his enablers, um, but I think that probably um, they did do some good things as well. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I think there are still many more books, t- including your own, that, it, uh, that are going to come out about uh, the Trump uh, administration, and I think we're going to continue to find out a lot of uh, a lot that's been happening. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, we can talk about impeachment now. It's very interesting because it, it has taken on, I think, uh, a, a different light uh, now that we see this uh, incredible war that has broken out between Russia and Ukraine, a war that tragically uh, American diplomacy and assistance to Ukraine was not only not able to prevent, but there's an interesting set of questions about, uh, you know, what things like uh, Trump's Ukraine scandal had to do with, with enabling the war in the first place. And so, um, Let's talk about that fall. This is an incredible trauma you've already had of, you know, being withdrawn as ambassador, uh, middle-of-the-night phone call. I'm sure people remember this part of your story, and you're, you're summoned back to Washington. The leadership never even has the courage to look you in the eye and tell you. You never hear from Mike Pompeo. Uh, and it's Carol Perez, the, the head of the Foreign Service, right, who basically gives you the hook uh, and... You know, they tell you, well, you did nothing wrong, but yeah. sorry. And so Deputy Secretary of Sullivan, when I yeah. actually got on the next plane to right. Washington, um, Deputy Secretary of Sullivan called me in. Right. And uh, Now he, our ambassador to Moscow, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. under very tough conditions. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was the one who got handed that, um, that, that assignment of right. firing me <laughs> officially, uh, which, uh, which he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he also told you that you didn't do anything wrong. 
Yes, he did. And I was so angry. Uh, I was so angry. And, you know, sometimes um, when I'm angry, it, it's expressed through, you know, just all these tears. Yeah. And I was sort of, um, I, I think it was probably a, a pretty unpleasant conversation for him. It certainly was for me in terms of, uh, you know, how can you be doing this? If I haven't done anything wrong, how can you be doing this? Yeah. And um, they didn't give you a good answer. Well, they, what they said is they wanted to protect me. Uh, they, uh, but what they wanted to protect me from was being fired by tweet. Yeah. And actually, my own view, even at that moment, was that they were protecting themselves and they were protecting the president. Because even though uh, you know, ambassadors have this exalted title, <laughs> uh, I mean, you and I both know uh, we are not actually very senior in an, in an administration. And if Donald Trump had fired me by tweet... I, I mean, everybody would have wondered what was going on. That's right. That's everybody right. would have. I mean, it was diplomatic malpractice anyway, but that would have, uh, you know, kind of sealed the deal. Right. It would actually would have been um, a, a public scandal earlier. Uh, yes. Yeah. And it would have called attention to uh, what Giuliani was doing in a different way. Exactly. So it was self-protective. But I was struck in reading your account of that meeting uh, and, 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 in general, the ordeals that, that followed on from that. You know, you described yourself as a rule follower. It, it, it was, it seems to me like, you know, that there is a sort of gendered element to this that you really, like, it took you a while to fight your way back to righteous anger. And if anybody was entitled to righteous anger, it was you. But that you, you know, this mix of, like, have I done something wrong? Are they going to ruin me? Uh, fear, fear. Yeah. And I, I think explaining to people a little bit about the, the fear that you felt in that moment when powerful people and forces that you don't understand, including the president, are out to get you. Um, that's the part that seemed like you and I might understand it in the former Soviet Union or in Russia, uh, but that's been so kind of revelatory to me to understand that, that Trump used fear uh, to take over the Republican Party in a large swath of Washington. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just speaking about myself, I mean, you, you, you described it really well. I didn't know what was going to happen next because in my world, if you pull an ambassador out of post and there was all this talk that I was corrupt and everything else, by people very close to the president, uh, consequences follow, you know, in a normal world. Um, there would be an investigation, you know, perhaps charges would be brought. I wondered whether, you know, as an additional, because we, we know <laughs> the president um, can, uh, can be quite petty sometimes. I wondered whether they would try to take away my pension because, of yeah. course, at that point I was thinking about retiring. Uh, I wondered whether I would be able to get a job anywhere because there was this little cloud over me. And on the one hand, I knew I had done nothing wrong. But on the other hand, I'm like thinking, could I have done something? <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, that self-doubt of, oh, my God, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe I'm like not understanding this, this all properly. And so that was, you know, sort of in, in, the, in the spring of 2019. And then fast forward to the perfect call. Right. It's released in September. Released in September. And that's when I heard um, the, or when I saw the transcript uh, where the president of the United States says she's going to go through some things. That's right. And I thought, what more could there be? He's already pulled me out. And around that time, I'm forgetting the sequence now, but the inspector general of the State Department goes marching up to um, the committees uh, that were starting this impeachment inquiry with um, the Rudy Giuliani file, mm -hmm. uh, which was, um, you know, 
all about me and the Bidens and this, that, and the other thing. And It, it was, was just, an oppo research file on you that he had sent right. uh, to the Secretary of State himself. Yeah, and everybody had sort of discounted it. But then all of a sudden, when, you know, we're getting to the boiling point in September, um, the Inspector General decides that he needs to share this with the committees. And I thought, what does this mean? I mean, if, if, if you actually look at the files, they are laughable. But I was not laughing because I wasn't sure what that meant. Yeah. And there's also this moment where Trump is speaking at the UN General Assembly in a press conference right after the phone calls released with the newly elected President Zelensky. And, you know, it's in hindsight, you know, now Zelensky has become this world-famous figure and, you know, of courage and but he wasn't standing up to Donald Trump in that press conference he looked so uncomfortable I mean some people have described it as a hostage video <laughs> uh, you know it was obvious uh, that he was being you know stuck up uh, by the president and he's trying not to alienate you know the this giant superpower that that Ukraine needs in its its fight and but he he goes along with Trump too though uh, you know and he also has said I think he said she's a bad ambassador. What, what was that about? And did you ever get any clarification from the Ukrainians uh, about that? All I got was um, somebody in the administration said, we, we, you know, this is in the last uh, six months or so, we'd be happy to have you back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that what was going on, uh, I, I think we need to remember that Ukraine is a um, smaller country at war with Russia because Russia had stolen Crimea and invaded uh, the countries east in the Donbass. And that war, even though it wasn't making headlines usually in the United States, but, you know, every week a couple of uh, Russian, uh, Ukrainian soldiers, uh, sometimes civilians, would die. I mean, it was a hot war in Europe even before 2022. Mm-hmm. And um, so we are Ukraine's most staunch partner across the board, whether it comes to Uh, economic assistance, and certainly security assistance. And so, you know, his mission, both in the phone call and in that September meeting, was to kind of try to solidify that relationship and get the security assistance that Donald Trump was dangling. And um, so, I mean, that's the context for where Zelensky is. And the other part of the context is, you know, a year ago, he'd been a comedian who hadn't even announced for president. And now all of a sudden he's on the biggest stage in the world with the most powerful man in the world who's, as you put it, holding him up. And so when we look at what Zelensky did um, in terms of kind of um, catering to Trump, Mm -hmm. um, I think we also need to look at, you know, some of the Western allies, the, the presidents, who did exactly the same thing. And we need to look at, you know, people in the United States who also catered to the president's ego. And um, so perhaps not so surprising that Zelensky followed that same. Yeah, um, no, not at all. But what, you know, I mean, this man's presidency, right, literally begins. Uh, People may not remember your book points out. You left uh, your post, uh, you know, the day of his inauguration of Zelensky's entire beginning of his presidency is overshadowed by this effort from Donald Trump to blackmail him. And now... His presidency is exploding several years later in, you know, the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. It's really, it's, you know, I mean, that biopic is going to be something. I mean, it's just an extraordinary story. But so, okay, let's talk about what it's like to be a witness in the impeachment of 
the president of the United States, and you are not a limelight-seeking person. We started out our conversation <laughs> with that, and here you are in the limelight, and it's all about you, and it'll make history in a lot of ways, but it'll also make history, as I believe the first time in history, that the president of the United States live-tweeted his <laughs> own impeachment by attacking uh, a witness or intimidating witness, depending on how you want to look at that tweet, in the middle of the hearing. What, what was that like when Adam Schiff reads to you Donald Trump, and he says, Marie Ivanovich is a disaster everywhere she's been, right? Mm-hmm. He talks about like that as if you personally, running the motor pool at the U.S. <laughs> Embassy in uh, Mogadishu, had personally ruined Somalia. Uh, what's it like when Adam Schiff is reading you that tweet? Yeah. Well, so it, it was a complete surprise, obviously, to me. Uh, I had no idea what was coming. And, you know, when first he announced that he was going to do this, uh, understandably, and so there's then there's the anticipation. I mean, what's he going to say? What's he going to? What is he going to say? What could he say? And then the actual tweet itself, um, as you just recounted, um, was ridiculous. Uh, it was absolutely ridiculous. And so you know, trying to compose my face. Although when I looked back <laughs> at the video that was played that night of of me listening to Adam uh, Schiff uh, re- uh, recounting this, um, I mean. All of my emotions were there for everybody to see, including, frankly, a little bit of contempt because my eyes rolled. I, I just, I, I couldn't believe that the President of the United States would do something like this. And e- even though he was attacking me, it really felt, even in the moment, that it was more about him. It, it revealed more about him. It revealed that, in fact, the sorts of things I was saying about how I had been treated was absolutely true because it was continuing. And um, I think he really demeaned himself uh, by doing that. I think the other thing is he really, um, you know, uh, handicapped uh, the Republican Party that was obviously trying to defend the president. Because, again, I don't know what their strategy was for that day. But if they had wanted to attack me, um, that became very hard at that, at that point. And so they sort of focused on... Um, their questions were focused on making me irrelevant or or the entire procedure irrelevant and illegal or um, they, I think, made me repeat a thousand times. Well, not the same story, times, yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. The same stories, but also that the President of the United States has the right to, you know, name ambassadors but also pull ambassadors for any reason at any time, which is absolutely true, but then why did he have to malign me? Yeah. And so that's... You know, that was the tell. Well, and again, I found that moment to be, I was just going back and reading, uh, you know, accounts of that day and, and my own mm-hmm. reaction to it. And I was struck by a couple of things. One was, as you said, the Republican strategy to just make this a sideshow. Uh, mm-hmm. Devin Nunez, the uh, Republican ranking member of the committee, uh, uh, who's now quit Congress to work for Donald Trump, so that gives you a sense of where he was mm-hmm. coming from. He said, well, this is an irrelevant story. Uh, Mm -hmm. Basically, I think there should be a subcommittee on human resources uh, (laughs) that should talk about what happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yet, it seemed like this was the key to unraveling the scandal, though. I mean, for many people, like Fiona Hill, it was your firing uh, that provided the spark to try to understand that there was a problem, that something not right was going on between Trump and Giuliani. And, you know, I think many people felt that actually your, your firing was the moment at which the kind of iceberg, you know, burst into, into view, um, a big part of the story. You didn't know many of these other elements at that time, though. 
No, no. It was happening around me. Yeah. So the other thing, and this conversation in your book, I must say, for, for people, because we are talking about a book, Lessons <laughs> from the Edge. Yeah, see, I can shamelessly flack for it. Uh, you know, you can <laughs> be dignified, but I'm happy to. Uh, it's really, it's, it's a very powerful read. And one of the things in the book and in your testimony is you bring this, I think I called it uncynical outrage, you know, about what happened to American democracy and to our system of government, you know, that this isn't how things are supposed to work. It's actually shocking, it you is. know, that the President of the United States would smear and fire uh, an ambassador who did nothing wrong. Uh, you know, do you, are you still able to be uncynical? I mean, you know, the American system on paper, does it still look as strong to you uh, after all of this? Well, as we know, <laughs> this was only the first impeachment, or yeah. the classic, <laughs> as some <laughs> right. call it. Original uh, Coke, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so not, not to make light of a very serious issue. Yeah. And the president was not held accountable. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think he was emboldened uh, that he thought he could do whatever he wanted. And fast forward uh, through uh, 2020, and the election campaign, and then the elections that he lost, but that he refused to concede. And, um, I mean, it looks to me, with all of the things that are coming out now, that there really was a conspiracy in order to um, hold on to power. And then there was the second uh, impeachment inquiry, and once again, the president was not held accountable. Mm -hmm. And so that is... There are many other things, as, as you well know, in, including, um, you know, targeting uh, journalists and um, uh, minorities and, and various other things. I mean, classic, uh, classic uh, actions uh, in uh, democracies that are starting to fail. But I, and just the divisions that we see in, in our society as well. So that was... You know, when we, we, we saw the uh, January 6th insurrection, I mean, that is something that I never thought I would see in the United States. Yeah. And that was, a, I think, a terrible moment uh, for, for many, uh, many people. But I think that what we need to take from that is not, you know, I hate government. I don't want to do, uh, you know, I don't want to know anything about this. I think what we need to do as citizens is work to... Um, to fix what uh, needs reforming, uh, to uh, strengthen our institutions, to find people with integrity to run for office and to hold those high-level positions in an administration. And as we're finding out, not just in the federal government, but at local and state levels as well. And I think, I think that's what we need to be doing. And I think we need to be purposeful about it and optimistic about it. Optimism is a force multiplier. <laughs> It certainly made the job of an American ambassador or an American diplomat a lot harder. Uh, you know, can you imagine delivering a lecture today, uh, you know, about uh, the integrity of elections and democracy uh, when our own has been so challenged? Well, I think that, yeah, so the short answer is yes, I can, because when we work with other countries on, um, you know, issues like freedom of the press, or um, freedom of assembly, it's not because we are perfect. It's because we know how important that is. And we're working on it in our own country, and you know, we hope you will too. I think the way one delivers a message 
is really important. Um, you know, we need to be listening as much as we are. Uh, I like to think that, you know, I wasn't lecturing, <laughs> but as much as we are um, sharing our official government point of view about, you know, various issues. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, um, after January 6th, um, so many people reached out to me and um, they were shocked, you know, all the same emotions that we had, shocked and afraid and um, wondered what was happening in the United States, but also afraid for their own countries. Um, at least many of the people that I know overseas do still look to the United States as an example and as a leader. Uh, and so we need to get our own house in order um, so that we can continue to fully inhabit that role. I was thinking of a moment uh, in Kurt Volker's testimony. He was the uh, special envoy who was dealing with uh, the Ukraine conflict. Uh, obviously, those negotiations didn't end up going anywhere, and actually, uh, you know, Kurt, who we both know well, ended up essentially trying and failing, you know, being inserted into the middle of this back and forth with, uh, you know, Giuliani and engages directly with him, despite many officials, you know, John Bolton and Fiona Hill saying, no, no, don't do that. That's not a good idea. He goes ahead because he thinks he can manage it, right? He's trying mm -hmm. to get a good outcome for, for the Ukrainian government and basically realizes in this breakfast he has with Rudy Giuliani, you know, that actually they are holding up uh, a meeting with a president of a foreign country uh, in order to get investigations. And he has this testimony where he talks about having a conversation with a senior advisor to President Zelensky in, in September. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, he's telling him, well, you can't go after your opponents in the election. You can't prosecute, you know, uh, vindictively, essentially. And the Ukrainian official says, well, wait a minute. You mean like you guys are telling us? And, you know, what just a, a undercutting, you know, like gut punch of a moment that must have been, you know, when you heard that, because that is exactly what American officials are, are trying to do to encourage uh, in other countries. And I, I remember that Adam Schiff seized on that, uh, you know, in one of his closing remarks in, in the impeachment trial. It just seems like this moment, um, you know, uh, we're no better than those we seek to, you know, correct. Well, you know, we always have to perfect our democracy, and the answer is not, you know, we're going to give up because it's too hard. The answer is doubling down and working really, really hard at it. And it doesn't mean that you have to run for office. It could mean that you're, you know, in your PTA, working with the teachers and doing great things with the kids, or that you're uh, working on some uh, garden plot to beautify the city, you know, cleaning up the trash and stuff like that. I think that uh, that kind of civic-mindedness is what built America, uh, and it also creates partnerships with people that maybe have different political views than you do. Mm -hmm. um, but you are building a basis um, uh, and a, uh, of a friendship and trust that maybe can get us to the next step in terms of knitting the fabric of our society back together again. You know, it, just listening to you, and this I think came through, comes through in the book, uh, you know, is retaining this sort of view of uh, the power of American civic institutions and democracy despite the challenges, you know, that you saw inside that literally, you know, changed the trajectory of your own life. 
you know, I'm reminded that you were one of many of the witnesses in the impeachment case who, uh, you know, had a background with immigrant families. We haven't talked that much about your own family story, but, you know, essentially having parents who, you know, saw firsthand both the consequences of Nazi and Soviet uh, aggression. You know, is that, do you think that factored into it? I mean, you had Alex Finman, Fiona Hill, uh, your own family story, uh, you know, in a way, the, these immigrants who are believing more in America than, uh, you know, those who've arguably benefited from the system so much. Yeah. Um, maybe. I mean, I, I know for myself, I, I became an American by choice at the age of 18. Yeah. And you have to think about what that means and, um, you know, where you want to live and, and uh, the values of the United States. And I wanted to identify myself with that. And my parents, they came here with nothing, and they um, were always grateful to the United States that um, we had safe harbor, they could bring up their children, uh, they could do well here. And um, they told me, you know, I needed to give back, just as they did. They were teachers and brought up generations of students. And so that was a, a huge influence on me. So you write about another part of the book that we haven't talked that much about, but I think it goes to this question of what's happening to American democracy and what about the democracies that you saw challenged or struggling to emerge? You were in Russia uh, several, a couple times in your career, uh, but you were there uh, in 1993 mm-hmm. uh, uh, in Boris Yeltsin's, not his standing on the tank, noble, staring down the coup, Boris Yeltsin of 1991, but uh, you know what later generations of Moscow correspondents like me would refer to as a sort of bad uh, <laughs> uh, coup in 1993. Mm-hmm. And and Boris Yeltsin, many people believe, by turning his tanks on the White House, he, he himself was dealing a blow to uh, Russia's halting nation efforts to become a democracy. And then you were there through the election of 1996 in Russia, in which there was basically a corrupt bargain yes. uh, to purchase that election on Yeltsin's behalf, justified by many people here in Washington uh, as a way to avoid a return the communists to power. Was that an original sin, you know, of, of Russian democracy? Was that the moment when something like Putin became inevitable, in your view? I don't know, uh, is, the short, uh, is the short answer. Uh, I, I would just say that um, the intelligence services uh, had always wanted more power, and obviously that's where he comes from. And you know, there, there was a choice. Uh, Yeltsin had a choice in um, 1999 who he would sort of set up as his successor. And as you'll recall, there were a number of prime ministers that were tried out and failed for one reason or another. And Putin, um, you know, he's a case officer, um, managed to, uh, to, to, to get that. I, I would like to add one thing, though, which is that, you know, there's plenty to criticize about what the U.S. did or didn't do in the 1990s with regard to to Russia. But uh, the first thing I'd say is we manage our foreign policy um, based on the information we have, the choices that we think are in front of us. It's, it's an imperfect process, and we do the best we can. And, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out exactly the way uh, you would have liked. But the second thing I would say is that the Russians have agency. Russia as a country, the leadership, and the people. And when we talk about these events in the United States, understandably, of course, we talk about it from an American-centric point of view. We did this, we did that, you know, blah, 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 blah. 
And it's like all these other countries have no agency. But actually, they are the most important actors in their own story. So that's a great note to end on, because let's talk about Ukraine and the agency, the incredible agency that we're seeing right now. It's just, it's extraordinary. Uh, You know, you uh, saw that there was a war while you were there as ambassador, but nothing like the war and, and, and the hell, really, that's now been unleashed upon Ukraine by Russia. You've said uh, in some of your interviews for this book that you do believe that somehow, ultimately, Ukraine will prevail. How is that possible? Because I think they will not... Uh, you know, there, it, there may come a time when uh, Russia prevails militarily mm-hmm. and there will have to be some sort of um, a peace deal made. Uh, but I'm not sure that the Ukrainian people... In fact, I'm pretty sure the Ukrainian people will not accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. And I think there will be a guerrilla war. Uh, and I think there will be civil disobedience. I think there will be st- snipers that will go after the Russian occupier. I think there will be, um, you know, I, I would not want to be a Russian soldier going into a Ukrainian cafe because I'm not sure what they would be serving me. Mm-hmm. And I would not want to be a Russian getting into a vehicle that was just uh, serviced uh, by a Ukrainian mechanic mm-hmm. because I'm not sure what would happen when I turned the, on the ignition. I think the Ukrainians will find ways to make that occupation so costly not only in terms of the diverted resources from Russia's own development, which needs, you know, we're seeing the economy collapse, which needs lots of resources, um, but in terms of, frankly, the body count of Russian soldiers. Well, uh, you know, we'll leave it at that. It's, a, it's an extraordinary bit of history that we're observing right now. And I want to thank you, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, for, you know, sharing your own history with us in <laughs> This book, it's really, it's, it's, it's a gripping read, uh, I think. Um, it's also a, a kind of a unique testament to American institutions under challenge and, you know, that there are real people behind these stories. It's not just a game of tweets, you yeah. know. Uh, this was your life. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think everybody is grateful that you managed to, to share your piece of this story with us, and I certainly am, and I enjoyed <laughs> the conversation, and I'm sure I have lots more questions for you, but um, thank you for this great, uh, this great hour. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.